This is Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Tuesdays and Thursdays from 10 a.m. You're on Rally Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. Remember, you can send me a text at 2057. You're going to want to send me a text after this next interview, I'm sure. You can email me, inbox at rallycheck.radio. And along this morning, we have a very, very interesting idea. And it's coming to us courtesy of Solomon Torkilson. And the idea is set the South Island free. Uh, cut the cable. Separate the North and the South Island, and the South Island will continue its gloriful way with its southern men and southern women. And no, nothing but peace and light. Is that right, Solomon? So lovely oh. to have you here this morning. Oh, cheers, mate. It's a brilliant being on. Thank you for inviting me. Now, I've got to ask you, your surname has got a hyphen in it, and when you first see it, you think, oh, it's Tor, T-O-R, hyphen, Kilson, K-I-L-S-E-N. I asked you, A, how to pronounce it, which I always do, and where it's from, and way, 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 way back, seven, eight, nine generations, your antecedents on your dad's side came from Norway. Yes, that is correct. That's correct. And went to Denver and cut all the trees down. Yep, no, yeah, and uh, yeah, no, they 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 did their job, I reckon. <laughs> they were like they were hardy people. That oh, they were, out. they were, and, and I think it's brilliant because you know the Scandinavians as a whole tend to be very very community based. Don't don't give a rats about what, the, you know, the politics or what's going on. They just want to get on with life and, you know, look after everybody and get the job done. Um, and, and you've you know, still got that in you, you think, from those generations past? Oh, I, re- I really do. I'm, I'm a dog with a bone, honestly. It's If I see there's something that needs to be done, I don't care. I, I don't really don't care what anybody has to say about it. It's just if the job has to be done, it has to be done. And... Um, the way I look at it is beyond just, it's not just myself, it's just not just my kids or my family, it's the community as a whole. Um, and when you look in Scandinavian countries, that's a very um, prominent idea is, you know, when the winter comes in and food's scarce and all this other carry-on, you just have to get on with it, you have to work with everybody and never mind the hustle and bustle of it, you've just got to get the job done yes. for benefit of everyone in the community and that's something that's a concept and a philosophy i've really brought into my own life going forward well once that winter socks in up northern norway in the old days cars and electricity oh man you're you're moments away from death at every every minute oh yeah yeah absolutely are and it's one of those things where like there's a lot of personal politics and a lot of, when you get snowed in, you have to put all that aside and you have to deal with whoever you're dealing with and yeah, you yeah, have to yeah. figure it out. You yeah. have to figure out your issues and you can't get too over the top with it because like, if you're you're snowed in with somebody, you could be snowed in with that person for, you know, three, four plus months. You, you've got to figure it out. Um, great. Now, the other thing I heard, I found out about you just chatting before, five children. Yes, father of five. Oldest is 12. What's Harold's the youngest? So uh, my oldest is 12. Well, he turns 12 um, beginning of next month. Um, 
and my youngest is two and a half going three. So father of five, all you. the same mum, figuring it out. And how old are you, Solomon? So I'm 32. Well, so you started having children before you were 20 or just when you were 20? Yep. So um, got married at... Uh, well, we got at, we got married at eighteen, nineteen, um, and first first baby uh, was born um, just after my twentieth birthday. So we started young. Um, fortunately, you know how, me. Do you know how fantastic I think that is? That is so fantastic. Well, my family. I came from a family. Uh, I'm I'm the middle child of. Um, one, two, it looks, three. It looks a lot when you've got to stop and count. Uh, yeah, no, I, I'm the middle child of I think five, six. Um, so I've got two older brother. Uh, so I've got two older sisters, one older brother, and two younger brothers. So right in the middle. So the idea of big family was just a that it was that was normal. So having but loads of kids. But you're bucking the trend in two. Well, in so many ways, you young man. What do you say? You were thirty-two. Young man. Thirty-two. Young man. Settling down, getting married, getting married's bucking the trend. Oh yeah, yeah. Set, I mean, set, I... settling down at twenty. Most kids are sort of still wondering what they're going to do, wandering around university. You were married with a baby on the way, like my yep. father was. Yep. Which, and then, all of that's just counterculture, and then to have five children. And may I say, I suspect you mightn't have stopped. Um, so, uh, I mean, unfortunately, um, uh, and this happened, I know, I know a lot of marriages and relationships, uh, fell apart during the first, um, lockdown. Uh, unfortunately mine wasn't an exception to that rule. Oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. I'm so and, sorry to hear that. Oh, uh, I think it's one of those things where social isolation is absolutely devastating. devastating. And, and I think, and I think New Zealand is only now starting to, bear the fruit of those lockdowns and that mass social isolation that happened. Um, now, me and the kids' mum, you know, we've, we've uh, you know, we're, we've come to an agreement between ourselves. So we um, we co-parent the kids. So we're as close to 50-50 as, as we can get. And we try to make sure that the kids, us not being together doesn't impact the kids. So we're, we've, we've done that well. So, you know, even then, even now we've figured it out. So, um, so we, so we do what's called the house. So I've got my bedroom in the house. She's got her bedroom in the house. Um, I was a full time solo dad of the five kids for about two years. Um, after that initial break, um, but we now co-share the house and co-parent our kids growing up. So as far as the kids are concerned, you see, even there, just because we're not together doesn't mean that we've put our care of the children away, if that makes sense. So They come you know, first. Absolutely. Oh, 100%. So you see, even there, it's, you've got to... I think society as a whole is very, very throwaway in as far as if it doesn't suit you, you throw it away and you, you know, get rid of it. It's just like, no, just because me and her aren't together anymore doesn't mean that we're beyond figuring it out for what's best for the kids, if that makes sense. I hope you don't mind us prying, but yeah, go on. 
you're co-nesting, you describe it. So do you have breakfast and dinner together? Um, yeah, so we, we've got the – we do the breakfast for the kids and, you know, we're – I get the kids, um, you know, we get them up ready for school. We we spend a bit of, you know, family hustle and bustle time in the morning before school. Um, get them to school. Now, I work at the shop. I work um, nine until nine, about 9 a.m. normally until about, you know, 6, 7 p.m. at night. Yeah. And then we have alternating weekends off. So every other weekend um like she'll take off for a weekend and the alternative weekend i'll take off for the weekend and so it's as close to 50 50 as we can whilst also giving each other enough space not to you know (laughs) blow up at each other (laughs) wasn't that wasn't that lockdown and that isolation devastating oh it's it's I I think it destroyed and did far more damage than we even realize yet. Uh, I think we're still we're still to see the end result, the 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 psychological and the social psychological impact of those lockdowns. Mm. Uh, I think we're, I think that's still coming. I think that's still working through. Um, and I I definitely think it's put New Zealand and the world as a whole on an interesting track and uh, i think the next few years are definitely going to be one for the history books and will be quite fascinating to look back on um you actually don't know you're in a significant bit of history oftentimes but you feel as though at the moment we're in quite a juncture you know we're in a we're in a extraordinary moment of history you don't know which way it's going to go Yes. And also there is a madness abroad, you know? Oh, it's I I agree. I uh, yeah. <laughs> on on multiple levels. Yeah. And, and this, this is the thing, is the whole situation is very, very nuanced. There's a lot going on. And yeah. I, I don't think people are aware necessarily aware of it themselves mm. or on a societal civilizational level. And yeah. I, I think it's yeah, yeah. You see and, when you talk Sorry, carry on. Yeah, no. Uh, well, when you talk in a um, in you know a fic- fictitious sense, because obviously we do a lot of um, at the shop, we do a lot of um, you know fantasy based bits and pieces, and one of the things you call uh, what's referred to as a canon event, and as far as this critical point that is the catalyst for such big changes, yes. even though it didn't seem particularly relevant or important at the time that butterfly effect is absolutely huge well it was like the archduke ferdinand being assassinated hardly anyone noticed and next minute there's world war one exactly tell me about your shop so i set up um so pre-COVID, actually, um, me and the um, the ex-wife, we set up a cafe arcade in Timaru because there's Timaru is doing very very well. It's a it's a growing port city. There's loads of room around it for expansion. Um, there's a lot of work here, a lot of building happening here, but there's very little non-alcoholic based, non-sport indoor entertainment available in Timaru, and you know, when when I was fifteen, growing up in Timaru, there there wasn't a youth centre, there wasn't anywhere to go, and 
I kind of got to the point, I'm like, right, my kids are starting to get a bit older now. So I wanted to create something that I needed for my kids and the community at large. Um, now, lockdown had uh, rolled around and uh, we, we lost the premises because um, there, there, there were a few landlords who were like, don't worry about the rent, you know, just stay afloat. Unfortunately, my landlord wasn't wasn't one of those one of those uh, uh, chaps. Uh, lovely guy, but, you know, it was what it was. And um, so lost the business after that, became a full-time solo dad for a couple of years. And then um, about 15 months ago, I restarted this concept. So what I've got in Timaru is it's a novelty game and gift shop. And we uh, two months ago, we added the commercial kitchen. So it's a cafe, dessert bar, lolly shop, game and gift shop where people can come and, and play board games, whether that's Dungeons and Dragons, Risk, Monopoly, Settlers of Catan, just getting people around a table. Because, you know, you think back, what what is one of the big differences between society today and society, you know, a couple of decades ago? is there's a lack of the kitchen table where people yes. get together and just talk and connect around a table. And that's what I've tried to create in Timaru is this community where people just get around a table, they play their board games, and the, the end result of that I've found absolutely phenomenal. Like you take a group of people that would all come together on one night, didn't know each other, and then six weeks later, that is their new friend group. Isn't that like, good for you? And and you and won't have booze in there. No, no. It's it's one of those things where I, I've I've seen the devastation that alcohol causes. Now I occasionally have a drink myself, but very very rarely. But it's you see, it's escapism. And it's what kind of escapism do you want? Now, alcohol has been used as an escape for, you know, thousands of years. But the idea of if you're going, if you want to escape reality, isn't it better to escape reality playing a game with a group of people than just getting on the pass? Well, how wonderful. So that's, that's kind of what I've done there. And it's, it's absolutely brilliant. And the community that's grown out of that and the connections that have grown out of that is absolutely brilliant. And it's not, and it's not just kids. Like this is the thing is probably my main demographic is young men between 20 and 40 is my main demographic. Wow. And it's just lads don't know how to make friends. They don't know how to connect with people. And the fact that I've gone here, look, you can play you can play this game at this table and connect with all these other lads. That is my main demographic between, you know, 18 to 40 year old men. And yeah, the connections and the friendships that have built out of that is absolutely phenomenal. I haven't seen anything like it because this is the, I think one of the other things is my generation. You, you, you see older generations had, you know, they, they had the churches, they had the associations, they had the Rotary, the Lions, the Lodges, whatever it was. My generation doesn't have that. And this is where I'm seeing the connections form around this idea of just playing board games on a table is that these connections, you know, being created as it's the coolest thing in the world to watch, especially because it's not 
Like, the demographics that mix in my shop aren't the demographics that normally mix. You'll have the guy, you know, with, you know, he's on the sickness benefit because, you know, he's got major health issues, sitting right next to, you know, the accountant or the architect, you know, bringing home 120k a year, and they're fighting trolls and orcs and dragons together. And those class lines just evaporate. Why? Because they are fighting this whatever together. And it is the coolest thing in the world. And you don't have like, it's not like on their phones. They're actually connecting physically. Yes. And, um, and this is one of the reasons why the, uh, the cafe side of it, because, you know, you've got these guys sitting around a table for, you know, three, four hours each night and I'm, I'm just saying, I'm like, well, they go away for food and they bring their food back. Why don't I start creating food? And, you know, that's why we open up the cafe side of it. Um, and yeah, it's just, it's growing real, it's growing really, really well. And it's, and do yeah, you it's think, a lot of fun. Do you think it'll be commercially successful for you? Um, we're growing probably about 18% a month. Goodness. Well done, Solomon. <clears throat> well done. Uh, You're on Radley Check Radio. It's Real Talk with Rodney Hyde. We're talking to Solomon Torkelson. And now we get to the heart of the topic. We've sort of done the throat clearing and got to know each other. And we're going to talk about why the South Island should declare itself independent from the rest of New Zealand, so North Island. And in your proposal, which I enjoyed reading immensely, Solomon, We'd also nab the Chatham Islands. Good thinking. Of course. Well, we'll, we'll, we'll give them, them a choice. The best we can. We'll, yeah, we'll, give, them, we'll, 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 we'll give them a good deal. We'll give them a good deal. And we'd get down to the real thing. But tell me, how did this idea of, for you, occur to you that the South Island should be separate? And Following that, what do you think is the main advantage of separation? So Southern independence is something that I grew up hearing about. So, you know, whenever there was a barbecue or, you know, people getting together. um, So before we were in Timaroola, I grew up in Burke's Pass and, you know, you'd have all the farmers and all this other carry on. And whenever there was a barbecue, there was always, you know, someone's drunk uncle talking about, you know, cut the cable and, you know, you know, Wellington can sod off. And it's, it's, it's an incredibly old idea. The idea of Southern independence has existed prior to New Ze- the New Zealand state even being, being a thing. Um, so, you know, there, there's over 170 years of South Island independence ideals in the South Island. Um, now, when I got to, you know, 1718, um, I went looking for the South Island independence movement. You know, I'd heard ideas and I'd heard all of all these groups in the past. And so I went looking for them um, and I couldn't find any of them. So I, I went and I, I started a wee Facebook group because I'm like, well, I'm looking for all these people wanting Southern independence. So I'm going to start this Facebook group. I'm going to start this Facebook page and, you know, maybe I'll be able to connect with other people that way. Um, and then it just grew. Um, it's, it went from, you know, 
you know, a couple of dozen members, a couple of dozen likes on the Facebook page to suddenly there are a few hundred and then a couple of thousand. And then we um, we got interviewed by, was it Seven Sharp or one of, the, one of those other, other programs when the Facebook page got to about a thousand likes. And then it just snowballed from there. Um, and then, uh, you know, three, four years ago, you know, when COVID hit and all this other carry on, um, it just exploded, absolutely exploded, especially when the South Island was COVID free for such a long time. And, we're, you know, we're all down south and, you know, we're still, you know, with all these lockdown restrictions, it's like there is no COVID here. Like, what? No, why? Crazy. Wasn't that? Oh, crazy. It, was absolutely, um, it was absolutely phenomenal. And it's almost like whenever the North Island and Wellington screws up and no, at the more they screw up, the greater the movement becomes. So realistically, it really just started as me going, is there anybody else out there? Well, like, where, where, where's all this uh, Southern independence stuff? Um, so that that's realistically how it started. And that's, um, I started that in 2013 2014 is when i first started it so it's coming up it's coming up 10 years now since we've had the facebook page um and for the first six years it was all just you know conversation and news articles and stuff like that and then um probably 2018 2018 2019 i started working on the book, the our, our Southern Isle book, um, and that was. It took me about a year to write it, and that was, you know, the six years prior. All the arguments, all the conversations, all the obscure pieces of information that I've dug up, dug up, and found, and I just wanted to combine it all in a single text because nobody else had done that. For all the talk of Southern independence, nobody had actually got together all the arguments, had got together all the numbers and actually, you know, figured it out. And nobody had presented the argument in a singular form before. And that's what I that's what I wanted to do. Now, don't get me wrong. I put a few of my own ideas. I'm like, you know, the, you know, it could work this way or that way. But, you know, I'm no expert. This is just, you know, my, you know, 27, 28 year old self going yeah this is what i think what do i know but you know here you go um and i think since then you know the the facebook page grew from you know 10 15,000 and now we're up to you know 39,000 followers which wow. is bigger which is bigger than some of the legacy establishment parties yeah um and it's for the most part it's just been myself going here yeah, this is what i think um and it's yeah the fact that you know some 32 year old in Timaru with a lolly shop can have set up a facebook page that has a greater following than you know new zealand new zealand first it's just like what is going on here <laughs> <laughs> now tell me what would be the advantage to the south island of liberating itself from the north so one of the key issues and this is one of the things i've done through the whole line is i i've steered away from i've tried to steer away from hot topics now of course you you start an independence movement you know 
left, right, center, everybody's going to try and jump on it and go here. We we want to build our utopia over here. And I've tried to steer clear of that for the most part. And I've tried to keep it socially and economically based. So one of the key things is the fact of the South Island, from the data that I've been able to find, has been tax positive for, you know, it's, for the most part of its entire existence. And what that means is the South Island pays more tax into the national coffers than Wellington ever spends in taxpayer money in the South Island for the South Island requirements. So we, we pay more tax than we actually get back in goods and services from central government. Um, if the North Island or Wellington, you know, disappeared tomorrow, you know, every South Island worker could get a tax break, that kind of thing. Um, in addition to that is the amount of rules and legislation and restrictions on southern businesses, southern farmers and southern industries is absolutely phenomenal. And a lot of that comes from, you know, Wellington and the Coromandel voters where they're like, we want everything to be nice and clean and green. And, you know, say South Islanders care about the environment. South Islanders yes. care a lot about our environment. They live in and, it. Oh, it's it's absolute paradise, mate. So, you yeah. know, you don't, you know, you don't shit in your own backyard. And like this yeah. is a key thing. And then to get lectured by, you know, a bunch of greenies on how we should be, you know, looking after the South Island. It's kind of like we do look after the South Island. Um but you're beginning, you know, farm- to, you're beginning to weave your spell. I'm beginning to get excited. <laughs> yeah, well, this is the other thing, mate, is it makes sense. For the most, like, it's, and this is kind of where I've always tried to keep it very pragmatic, is the fact of it's not North Islanders versus South Islanders. It's, you know, it's not, it's not, it's not personal. It's purely the fact that the South Island has so much going for it and we're not allowed to actually do things the way they we could do them. You, you look at how government the government restrictions on farming goes. You say, you know, a couple of generations ago, farmers looked after their farms and operated their farms in such a way where they took the best care of them they could because they knew they were passing their farm on to the next generation. Whereas the re- the rules and legislation now is make your money while you can because you know there's there's you, there's no point in putting it forward to the next generation and you know farmers are under the heel of that and it's it's just it doesn't make sense. Um, but you also look at it and like, I've done a couple of tours around the South Island um, giving talks and my last one over to the West Coast, I was um, going down one of the West Coast highways and I go around this corner, around this hill and there's coal falling out of the hill naturally onto the main road. And South Island coal is very, very clean, burns incredibly hot and is the, you know, some of the least damaging um, environmental, you know, coal to burn. It's so efficient and so burns so hot and so efficiently and so clean. It's absolutely brilliant stuff. But you, as a local, if you you know get caught out, you know, bringing a you know a shovel and a you know a bag and a pickaxe to that corner to grab yourself some good West Coast coal, you're going to get fined. But you make a lot of sense because what you're saying is there's this culture of government, which is 
all about telling everyone what to do and what's best for them, the culture of government is overwhelmingly dominated by Auckland and Wellington, and you can add in the Coromandel for the beach house, but it's disconnected from the productive sector, that is to say farming and resource extraction. Yes. And um, the rules and regulations get made by these people, the bureaucrats and the politicians, who have no clue what it is to be living in an Ungahua Junction, to a Tapiri, Timaru, and why you need a gun, yeah. why you need to be cutting that tree down, why yeah. you need that coal. They have no clue why that drainage needs to be put in. And what you're saying is if we separated the productive part, the resource extraction part, let's say that rather than productive, I don't want to be pejorative of non-productive. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe I do. Um, it's culturally at odds, isn't it? And oh, you, yeah. see it all, you see it all the time on a work site where people have to go through this performative stuff of safety rules and regulations because they're working for a big company and it's got to follow all the rules and regulations because the directors are liable. And everyone's looking at it like it's an insanity because they know how to keep themselves safe. Well, this is the thing, mate, is workers, well, of course, workers are going to keep themselves safe. They've got kids, yeah. you know, misses and the rest to go home to. Um, and it's absolutely stupid. And I mean, I honestly, I, I reckon half these politicians that put, you know, shove all this, you know, all these register, you know, all these rules and regulations through. I doubt any of them have even seen a piece of coal in, you know, in the flesh. Yeah. Half of them. Um, and you, you look in comparison, like, you know, we still use a lot of coal in New Zealand, yes. but guess where we get it from? We get it from Indonesia. Which and is and a second rate coal. It's absolutely filthy coal, you know, and that's that's the environmentally bad coal, but we're not allowed to touch the pristine coal that we've got. Oil and gas in the South Island that's extracted from the various wells around the South Island is some of the cleanest, hottest, you know, oil and gas in the world. It's some of the best stuff in the world, but we're not allowed to touch it. Um, there's something like um, I think there's over a hundred you know, over 110 wells around the South Island, oil and gas wells around the South Island, and we're not allowed to extract any of it. You know, there, there's, there was plans for, you know, um, up Murchison, there was a plan to set up a refinery up around there because of all the top-level oil and gas around there. Um, and this is the thing, is it's not required to go out to sea. There's so many hot spots around the South Island where you can get oil and gas from. You don't even have to get your feet wet, mate. Mm, and no. we're not allowed to touch it. And now tell what? me, tell me, um, I imagine that this methane emissions on farmers could be a huge break point. Oh, mate. It's... Uh, <laughs> you want to meet some pissed-off people? <laughs> Yeah, they can't farm. No, they can't. New Zealand 
produces enough food to feed 40 million people, but we're being told we're not allowed to farm, we're not allowed to our animals, we're not allowed to do all this other carry-on. Um, and it's just, it's imbecilic. It's imbecilic. Like, oh, it's, and it's it's absolutely ludicrous. But that will be, that could be, that could be a big push for your movement because at the moment, Farmers in the South Island are trying to argue with Wellington to yeah. sort of lift their boot off their neck somewhat, but to still keep it on their neck. Yeah, and, and what and, you're and, suggesting is get the boot off the neck, and that's exactly it, mate. Is the fact of you know it's not that people. In the I feel South sorry for the farmers in the North Island now. Oh, it's well. I mean, we're going to need some good farmer. We, we'll need some more good farmers down here. So, <laughs> if you want to relocate, <laughs> um, now, ordinarily, an independence movement, it seems to me, has a cultural difference. You know, like Wales and Scotland, different languages, yep. don't speak English historically, uh, different, different tribal origins, um, different observable culture but when you look at the south island and the north island if you took away the madness of government and there's been a lot of movement between the north and south we're pretty much the same people oh to a point like this is one of the things like we i've i know a few people that have moved um from up north down to the south island and one of the things they'll say is it's a lot slower paced people are a, lot, uh, are a lot friendlier there's spades a spade and nobody cares about all the pc bullshit um and it's i tend to think that people in the south island tend to be a bit more genuine um, like there's a lot less going on. There's a lot less mining of your P's and Q's and all this other carry on. We're not scared of this, that, or the next. And, you know, if you don't have to second guess where you are with people because people will, you know, if somebody doesn't like you, they're going to tell you at the same time. you know, Yeah, one like thing you, I have to do, Solomon, oh, I, have to ad- I have to admonish you because we're in people's homes. So we, we drop the swear words. You wouldn't swear like that around your nana. So none no, of this. Sorry, no, no, no. It's not apologizing to me. It's because you and I at one level are talking, and we're two men of the South, as it were. And we're talking, it's understandable. But we just got to realize that we're also in lovely ladies' houses, gentlemen's houses, and we're invited in. So we respect that. And so it's easy to forget, by the way. Um, so no disrespect to your argument, though. And I know sometimes when you're in the South and you're talking to another bloke, you add a bit of emphasis. But you're saying that culturally there has become a difference. I think there is, I definitely think there is a difference between the North and South from a cultural perspective. Um, I think there's, I think there's the political. I definitely think there's a lot more social um, social justice, um, political correctness that is intrinsic in the North Island. And I don't know if that's because there's a lot more universities up in the North Island. Oh, um, oh yeah. And it's, <laughs> I think there's 
there's a lot more cultural activism in the North Island versus the South Island. Mm. And I think there are a lot more because, you know, it's, you, you look at the, uh, the fact of the North Island is warmer. It is more, it's a more tepid environment. It's a lot easier to survive in the North Island. If you, if, example being in, in the South Island, if you, you know, you lock yourself out of your, your house or you, know, you, you end up sleeping in the car or whatever, it's in the South Island, that that's that's rough. In the North yeah. Island, not necessarily potentially as much. So I think due to the fact that there's so many more yeah, no, New Zealand's uh, population has grown a lot in the last few years. There's a lot of people from around the world that have come to make New Zealand their home. And when you get that many people moving to the country, they're going to move to the most comfortable parts of the country they can. So I do think there is an aspect of, you know, a lot of your Americans, your Brits, uh, people from Europe, Asia, et cetera, they've all moved, a lot of them moved to the North Island because that's where it's comfortable. And then when you've got so many different groups all in the North Island, there's, I think there's a tension there that has probably got worse over the last couple of decades, which I don't think you see quite as much in the South. No, I certainly notice that if you go from Timaru or Arrowtown and mm. head to Auckland, you get a shock. At oh, the it's, it's at, quite profound. At the melting pot. And you don't necessarily feel as though, you feel as though you've gone to another place, not to a different town. Correct. Well, I, I've gone to, uh, I, you know, I've spent a bit of time in Wellington and Auckland, and it's it's quite jarring. Yes, honestly. Um, and again, I don't know if it's for the fact of it's just there's so many more people, because that is one of the things that is a quite characteristic of the South Islanders. And everybody in the South Island loves it. There's nobody here, mate. Yeah. <laughs> Timaru, like Timaru has always been, I grew up in Rangura, just north of Christchurch, and Timaru has always been a favorite place because it's, it's just got that beautiful port. And oh, that beautiful ocean, and you can be up on the hills looking out, um, and it's got all the amenities, and it's even it got a game shop uh, now where you can go and play board games. So it's got everything. And it's, I mean, I'm sitting here, I'm, I'm sitting out on, on my uh, window set, and I'm looking at the ocean over here, and I'm looking at the, you know, the mountains over there. Like it's, you can't get better than it, mate. It's, no. it's absolutely phenomenal. So um, what is the – do you know technically um, what is the process for – I keep – I one of the things I read a lot about is the Civil War, American Civil War, and um, because it was such an enormous tragedy. Yes. And such an enormous death and destruction. and. Of course, it's a history that is still argued about, and even the causes and the reasons why. And of course, um, it's similar to the argument, in my view, to what you're discussing, because the North South was paying eighty percent of the tax yep. and receiving twenty percent of the benefits. It was an economic argument because they were wanting to tax the South to fund and subsidize manufacturing in the north 
and slavery yep. came later in the war as a a weapon to use yes. against the South, in my understanding. Happy to be corrected on that, but I have read as much as I can. Yeah. But they had it in their constitution. And of course, this was the, this was the Southerners' point that their constitution was that the states came together as an agreement and the states could leave if they chose to. And so the southern states, after many, many years of debate and argument, said, well, we're, you know, very sorry, but this tax has got to honour us and we're yeah. going to leave. And they got crushed. Not just crushed, it was they got devastated by the north. Yeah. Now, they had a, a process established in their constitution to leave and still couldn't. So how does the South Island, what's the process by which the South Island decides uh, we're going to govern ourselves? So I think one of the advantages the South Island has is the fact that uh, we're – yeah, there's. Uh, I do. I'm not religious myself, but I do like the the argument of you know God's already set up the South Island's borders himself by making us an island. Um, so I, you know, I've heard that you know tongue in cheek comment, but it's uh, it's one of those things where. Oh, sorry. There we go. Um, so it's. The process that we would look through it is the fact of because New Zealand is still part of the Commonwealth, there is precedent law for regions within the Commonwealth that are still under the Crown going through the process of becoming independent. Mm. So that these processes have happened in what was the British Empire in the past. And because we still have, you know, the the Crown, the, the monarch and the Crown as our um, head of state. There, if you can present to the Crown via the Governor-General or directly to the Crown themselves that 51% of the population wants independence, then the argument is there for us to have independence. And that is... Yeah. It's one of those things where I don't see there any need for any form of conflict for the South Island to become independent. Because... This has happened before in the British Empire where regions go, look, as a region, democratically, the majority of us want independence from the other side. Your Majesty, can we, 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 we petition you to allow us to do this. Um, so it actually doesn't have anything to, uh, if the South Island wants to become independent from the North, it actually has nothing to do with Wellington. It actually has to do with the reigning monarch at the time. My and goodness. we. So well, I might send a birthday card to King Charles or something. Yeah, yeah, with a, with a little, yeah, yeah. Consider, you know, could we do this? Um, now, it is one of those things where, as you know, subjects of the crown, you know, we we can write to the the reigning monarch, and you know, we can request information, or you know, e- even request to have a conversation with them in that regard now that's not something that we'd do until we had actually got to the point of having a south island based referendum on that point but the processes are there in crown law those processes 
doing Goodness this. Me. Well, and, that's great news. Now, tell me, I, I've never thought about all of this. This is all news to me, Solomon. So if we, by the way, I'm talking to Solomon Torkelson, and we're discussing independence for the South Island. And we've just covered, well, we've covered off the logic for it. Um, and we're talking about the process. And now I'm talking about how it would look. So would would the South Island establish its own parliament and government for itself? Is that how you'd see it? That Yes, that is how I, I would see it. So one of the things that we're working on in the South Island independence movement at the minute is, so where there's 24 districts in the South Island, there's seven regions in the South Island. So one of the things that we're currently working on putting together is a citizens' assembly or citizens' parliament with a representative from each district and re each region to meet together on a yearly basis to start the process of, um, you know, kind of like, uh, not in a clandestine, you know, uh, sense, but a shadow parliament in a, as far as setting up the structural mechanisms that would eventually evolve to become a South Island parliament. Got it. And um, we would... We would be, there'd be no political administration of the South Island from the north. Correct. It's it's one of those things where you said. Do you know what I to... love about it? Do you know what I love about it? It would take about two hundred years for politicians to wreck the South Island again. You know what I mean? Because you'd start off, you'd start off with very few rules, and yes. you'd have this incredible period of wealth, and then over time. What seems to happen is the political class become, you know, you'd have start off with citizens who are doing it for the right reasons. And then over time, government would transmogrify into this monstrosity of bureaucrats and political careerists. But you'd have a couple of hundred years for that to morph into that. So you'd actually have a breathing space of decades and decades because you couldn't produce all the rules that no. our current government has got. You start off with, you'd start, wouldn't it be amazing to start off and you say, okay, we need to write some rules for the South Island. If you could come up with 10, you'd be doing well. Yeah, I mean, this is the thing, mate, is the fact of it's a chance to start fresh. Yeah. It's actually a chance to start fresh because this is the problem that we have in the current political system because I know a lot of people who are like, oh, you know, we need to change the system from within. And I, I know very few people that have, you know, survived that process themselves. Oh, you're looking at um, one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's one of those things where why try to <sighs> – there's a phrase that I came across a while ago called, uh, that said, sometimes it's easier to give birth than it is to raise the dead. And we live in such a corrupt system. Why try and uncorrupt it when, you know, there's so much, there are so many people that have such a invested interest in how the status quo is. Why try to change any of that when we can just go, nah, we're just going to start fresh, start again, as we the people want it to be. And this is one of the advantages we have of our age is the fact of 
at no point have we had has the average person had so much free access to information yes when we we can actually look at every country in the world we can look throughout history and go what worked what didn't work and actually bring the best of everything into forming this new country that would be an independent south and we, we you know we get to go through that process and have those conversations you know what what was the best of you know Scandinavia's model? What was the best Swedish model? What were the yeah. best and worst from the UK, America, wherever else? And we actually get to go cool. How do we fashion something that could last the test of time? But certainly in the you know like you said, certainly for the first two hundred years or so, you know we could actually make it good for our children and our children's children. Yeah, what would this new country be called that is a hot topic because <laughs> it um, had a name it had a name pre-government was it new munster was that the south north island what was wasn't there something called new munster yes so the south island um was originally called new munster and there, there's certainly the advocates for new munster i've heard new munster um south zealand um yeah there's the maori name that i keep i can't i keep i trip over my tongue every time i try to pronounce it um but you know they're, they're, i've heard of a lot i even heard of mainlandia because you know we're the mainland and all this other carry on um so me myself, and this is just my own personal. Um, I've taken the so New Zealand is on top of the eighth largest continent in, in the world, and you know New Zealand is, and it's ninety percent submerged, and the top ridges of it are you know the North Island, the South Island, New Caledonia, and that continent is called Zealandia, and it's actually split into North Zealandia and South Zealandia. And so that, and I've, I've named my shop in town, South Zealandia. So, you know, there, there might be a hint for what I think it that's could be called, one. but. Um, South Zealandia, I like it. Yeah. And that's, and like I've set up my shop with that name. Cause it also sounds cool. Like you, you think about, you know, Persia or Babylon or, or Babylon or, you know, um, you know, Britonia or you know all these other things and it's got there's there's a there's something about you know Zealandia or South Zealandia that just sounds cool yeah um and like and we'd have to come up we'd have to get John Key involved in coming up with this oh no we can't he's a North Islander he was born in he was born in the South Island he might he look he'll be desperate to come down here because there'll be no tax um but he could come up with the flag right Process to get us back. <laughs> what are we going to call it? South Zealandia. He could come up with the flag for South Zealandia, and we could vote on that. Mm. And um, we'd probably have to build. We'd have to have strong immigration, I think, because imagine how many North Islanders would want to rush back here. On, honestly, mate, it's probably the coolest thing I get. The coolest messages I get are from so many expats who are like if the south island comes independent i'm coming home i have no reason to come home right now but if the south island were to become independent we'd move home um and i think it's one of those things for all the people that are not you know for all the people that value freedom for all the people that value freedom of speech um 
the right to just you know be left alone and to get on with life i think there's a lot of people up north that would probably come down who want to come down for the south island yeah. because well, of the we'd be checking them out we'd be checking them out uh, well um, i mean being able yeah absolutely mate well, i mean if, if you're going to come to the south island you've got to come willing to you know put the overalls on and get some work done and actually help us build this country. Um, South Zealandia, because it's got a lot of work ahead of it. We've got a lot of coal to extract. Um, oh, yes. <laughs> now, cut to a very important thing, probably the most pressing, outstanding thing. How would we manage the Rugby World Cup? <laughs> oh. Uh, I, 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 I reckon, I, I reckon, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd figure it out. I think well, we'd figure it out. I was thinking that, like, <clears throat> the UK manages to grab people from Wales and Scotland, right? Yeah, exactly. That's right. We'll, we'll just get all the good ones from up north. and <laughs> Yeah. Or we could just have the South Zealandia team and we'd be so rich that we'd, we would buy the best rugby players from the North Island. I, I don't think it'd be hard to do, mate. I don't think no, it'd be hard. I don't to think do. it'd be hard to do. That would be really cool. Oh, it, it would. And again, it's a bit like the you know Stewart Island and the Chatham Islands and all this, uh, all this. Yeah, you know, we'll just offer them a better deal. Yeah, because we can, <laughs> because we're rich. Well, this is the thing, mate, is the the material and mineral wealth in the South Island. People actually have no idea how materially wealthy the South Island is. Um, you, I mean, you, just the gold, you look at the gold, you look at the oil, you look at the coal, you look at the iron sands. The South Island is incredibly mineral, mm. has incredible mineral wealth that we're just not allowed to touch. Um you know, you walk through the West Coast uh, on the wrong track and the wrong part, and you pick up a piece of gold off the hill, which does happen. You know, if you you don't have a license, you get fined for that. Yes. Um, I remember and, my friend, my friend and colleague, and now an RCR, Don Nicholson, when he was hmm. president of the Federated Farmers, and he was a sheep farmer in the Deep South. And I remember him calculating how many sheep he had to have a year to fund one civil servant. And it was a lot, right? Oh, and yeah. When, when you look, when you go around the South Island and you see a farmer with this huge acreage, mm. which they have to have now to be economic. Absolutely. And the responsibility and the effort and the risk. And there they are producing, funneled up to people who are writing rules and regulations only, that is to say doing nothing productive, and then sitting around debating them and discussing them and worse implementing them. The farmers funding that. And then these rules and regulations get funneled back to the farmer to make his day and the farmer. I mean, when I say farmer, I'm not meaning because these days wives on farms work, have to oh, work. Oh, God, yes. Those rules and regulations turn up not to make their day easier, 
but to make it harder and ultimately impossible. Well, that and this is exactly it, mate. Is trying to be a farmer in New Zealand is um, it's the government is actually making it impossible for people to survive working the jobs they love doing. And, and maybe, and maybe that's ultimately the plea you would make to King Charles. Well, I mean, absolutely, mate. I, I, well, I mean, even in addition to that, mate, I he I will, think... he will. Oh, I know, he'll remember King George the Third because <laughs> when when King George the Third got the note saying, you know, it's getting a bit onerous for us people in the colonies what we're having to pay in tax to fund your wars is getting a bit sickening and they ignored it. Well, things happen. And I mean, the thing is the tax on the American colonies was a pittance. Well, I mean, it was what? 3% less than 3%. Yeah. Oh, we're, here, we're paying a bit more than that, mate. And here we are. You could just say, look, we are unable to provide for our families. Under this onerous rules, well, and this is it exactly, mate. As the fact of it's oh, hundred percent. It's it's the fact that New Zealand produces enough food to feed forty million people. Yet I know people that are having to skip meals so their kids can eat, and that's becoming a a story I'm hearing all too often. In the fact of we've got so much space and nobody can afford to get into a house. Oh, Timaru, Christchurch, Dunedin, all yeah. over the place. It's, um, it's I can't believe it. I can't believe it that here in Queenstown, we have people working, Kiwis working, mm -hmm. tradesmen working, and sleeping in a car at night. Yeah, in winter. Oh, and they're having to mate. do that. They're having to do that simply because of the rules and regulations. Because you could knock up a house in a month to provide for them. Oh, you could. It'd be all too easy. Um, I, I and I reckon it's one of those things where in an independent South Island, I think it's. I think a good rule to have in place is if you want to be a minister of any particular field you actually have to have worked in that field for a couple of years in your life before yeah. you can like have that portfolio. Like I've got one policy. Yeah, go no, on. Po no politician gets paid. Well, this is the thing is, you know, being a politician used to be a voluntary role. That's right. You, you did it because you loved the country, not because you wanted right. to line your own pockets. And, and that you had been successful. Correct. Like this is the thing when the country used to have politicians who becoming a politician was their uh, how they gave back to the country in their mm. retirement. Mm. Our country actually did okay. Oh, well, there you go. Well, there's much to digest. I tell you, I had never thought about it. I had heard the discussion like you all through my boyhood, and I always thought, you know, yeah, cut the cable, whatever. It's very excellent. Solomon, that you have given it the thought, that you're putting an organization around it, that you're prepared to have a debate. I must say, you're a very articulate proponent of it and uh, very well reasoned. I'm going to go away and have a think and more power to you now. 
for those people in the North Island, in the South Island, and overseas listening in, how do they find your organization or your Facebook page? So if you go onto Facebook and you look up uh, South Island Independence Movement, you'll yeah. find us on there. Um, or if uh, the discussion group we have um, set up is called um, SIIM Discussion Group, so South Island Independence Movement Discussion Group, or people can get a hold of me via email at secretary.siim.com m at gmail.com and yeah if anybody's wanting additional information or right. to have a yarn feel free to get in touch well solomon thank you thank you for being a wonderful productive person so interesting to talk to there you have it ladies and gentlemen what a great guy we're on rally check radio it's real talk with rodney hyde send me a text about the south island independence movement 2057 email me inbox at radleycheck.radio I enjoyed that I was listening in I I started off being extreme extremely skeptical mainly thinking about our sports teams funnily enough you know the important things but when you think about how do you how do you get government back on track how do you get back to basics well maybe you have to start again and maybe this is a mechanism because you know, people are really suffering. And it's not that we don't have the ability to build houses. It's not that we don't have the know-how to provide for our families. It's that we literally can't. And we can't, not for physical reasons, but for political reasons, where every which way you turn, you're being smacked on. So maybe this is a circuit breaker. Might wake up the North Island too even the fact that we have a movement. Thank you for listening. Uh, hey, aren't we blessed to have such amazing people in New Zealand? And here's a surprising thing. <clears throat> I'd never heard of uh, Solomon. And he's a great guy. He's got great ideas. You would normally think that, you know, when you look at a newspaper or turn on the radio or turn on TV, you'd actually hear these different ideas and different debates, but you don't. Got to come to reality check radio because all the legacy media just run the legacy stories thanks for listening this is real talk with rodney hyde tuesdays and thursdays from 10 a.m